Okay. Hi, my name is Amanda Kasseri. My pronouns are she, her. Today is uh, Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. And I'm speaking with Julia Ferrioli and Josh Simmons, uh, who Julia, I work with on the Open Source Stories Project. Uh, and I met Josh, I think originally on Twitter. And then we just have been fans of each other's work. And now we're getting to know each other better. I'm recording this conversation for open source stories in what feels like a cave, but is actually just a room that needs more lighting in New England. Um, and my first time that I remember watching a spooky movie was actually Poltergeist, which was released in the early 80s, and I still find terrifying to this day. Julia, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Julia Ferrioli. My pronouns are she, her. I'm recording this from my office in Seattle. Um, I want to say that my first spooky movie was actually Edward Scissorhands when I was like four. Bad life decision. <laughs> I've been afraid of scissors ever since. And I will pass it off to Josh. <laughs> well, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Josh Simmons, pronouns he, him. Uh, I am uh, here in my office, uh, my new office here in Petaluma, California, Coast Miwok land. Um, and, you know, I remember what my first spooky movie was, but I remember the first movie that really left a scar. Um, and that, that had to be Independence Day. Um, some of those really like jump out at you moments. Whew. Yeah. Oh, those, those have stayed with me. I, I have to admit that that's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> awesome. That makes it even better. But yes, it does have some some pretty big jump scares. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellently, excellently executed for that mm -hmm. movie. True. Awesome. So, Josh, I'm really curious as to um, when you're thinking about the work that you do in open source, um, how would you describe yourself? And like, whether it's by role or the work or the thing that you think you're most passionate about in the open source world. Oh, that's such a big question. Um, you know, I think the, the, the word that I identify with is not one that I actually use very often. Um, and that's diplomat. Um, because I feel like uh, a big part of what I, what I bring to the community is being able to build bridges between different stakeholders, different belief systems, different this, that, and the other. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that has certainly come with the community work that open source demands of me. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, diplomacy is a very hard thing to navigate. Um, and especially in a distributed environment such as open source. So, yeah, I also think it's it's interesting. Uh, I remember talking with somebody about the word diplomacy earlier in the year and how it doesn't 
necessarily always indicate a peaceful outcome. And so I'm curious as you feel that, are you leaning towards that always of a peaceful negotiation side? Or is it also the part where you're trying to maybe maintain boundaries around anything in particular? So, you know, I, I, I grew up as a pathological people pleaser. Um, this is one of the many things that uh, came with, came baked in uh, as a Californian and as uh, as a man who was formerly closeted. Um, and so for a long time, that that diplomacy was really about, let me just paper over all the conflict, uh, which is actually not a very good form of diplomacy whatsoever. Um, by and large, my aim is to keep the peace, help people understand each other, and align incentives. In recent years, um, in order to do that, I have had to get much better at setting strong boundaries. Um, and, you know, I, I, I never aim for a less than peaceful resolution, uh, but sometimes that peaceful resolution is walking away. So when you talk about boundaries, what are, uh, of those that you're willing to talk about, um, what are some of the the hardest that you've had to, to formulate Ooh. or enforce? I think yeah, there, there are two things that come to mind. I, I think first and foremost, as somebody who has like formally been in, formally been, been employed as a community manager um, and has occupied positions of leadership um, unrelated to the community management. Both of those are roles that I've been in where um, part of the job is to take it on the chin, um, to take responsibility, to make sure people feel heard and validated, um, and to take ownership of situations that I may or may not have had a hand in creating. Um, and so for the longest time, for the longest time, because I didn't value myself enough, that actually got a little, I took that too far um, in, in my time as community manager and rolled over for a lot of abuse that came my way. And, um, and the abuse wasn't always like, you know, it wasn't always like, oh, this person is attacking Josh. No, it's, it's, there's a situation and somebody is being abusive of me in trying to respond to the situation. And so one of the things that's been really difficult for me in setting boundaries is to draw that line between like, look, I will hear you, but I am not here for your toxicity. Um, and sometimes being able to say like, you know, come back when you can come with a cooler head. Um, that's been really challenging. Yeah. Was there a person or a moment or a specific time that really kind of helped change the way that you viewed your role in those situations where you felt like you were empowered to set more boundaries for yourself? 
I think it came in in a couple stages for me. the the first uh, The first was in 2015, uh, which uh, I get, get chills and goosebumps kind of thinking about it. Because honestly, 2015 is I was on duty as a community manager for uh, for O'Reilly OSCON, um, and that was the year that we had a speaker on the program um, who. Uh, the nature of her work was very upsetting to some people. Um, this is key words here, Gamergate, you know, pre-alt-right nonsense and toxicity. And uh, being the public face of that event uh, that was being targeted by, uh, by these, these individuals for, with, with harassment and vitriol, um, you know, it, 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 it occurred to me somewhere in that firestorm that like, oh, you know what? Some of these people are not engaging in good faith. Shock. Um, <laughs> I'm amazed. And so, I, so, so that was my first like, oh, okay. Let me, let me like, does this path the sniffs test? Is somebody just trying to waste my time or is somebody actually here to try to have a conversation? Um, and then more recently, much more recently, in fact, um, as I as I served as the president of the Open Source Initiative, um, an organization that that does very important work, um, but doesn't always make everybody happy. Um, you know, I was in a position where I was being uh, really sharply criticized for things that were pretty mundane. Um, and the attacks like went extreme, really extreme. Like I can't overstate the nature of the attacks compared to what was actually happening. And, and so I finally had to assert myself and, and to say like, well, this, is not healthy for any one of us. Mm -hmm. And I will own my role in things. I will own this organization's role in things, but there's a line that's been crossed. And, you know, uh, ad hominem once, shame on me, ad hominem twice. Uh, <laughs> wait, no. <laughs> no, I just had to, you know, I, I just had to, to, to cut ties with some people. Mm -hmm. um, because as much as I may have cared about them and, and still do, um, they couldn't separate me, the human, from whatever conception they had of me and the role that I sat in. Yeah. So this is this is a pattern that I think is is unfortunately common in open source. Is there something about how open source operates? or whatnot that that makes uh, that that lends itself towards these like hyper personalization I think I think it's the 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 dark side of one of the things that I quite love about open source um, which is that by and large, um, open source communities are uh, self-identified communities of practice 
people who show up because they want to, because they care, um, you know, and, and not only care about the subject matter of like, well, here's the problem we're solving, but in open source, we also come to the table with philosophies, you know, and and the 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 easiest, most obvious one to reference is okay, well, there are free software purists out there. And 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 bless them and thank them for holding the line. Uh, not all of us can live that way. Um, and and you know, people come to open source for different reasons. It's a philosophy of sharing, it's a philosophy of freedom, it's you know, there there are different takes that people have. And so it it feels like there's more of our personal identity on the line when we're here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a few different philosophies. I'm curious, what's yours? Like if you were to describe open source to someone who's unfamiliar with it, what do you, what do you use? What words do you use? What do you not use? Oh, I struggle with this one. Um, so I try not to mention the word, uh, if, if it's somebody who doesn't work in software, I try not to even mention the word licenses. Uh, uh, I try to use the, I try to use the framing of standards, uh, like, Hey, open source is a standard of sharing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like if somebody else has built a wheel, why would I reinvent it when I could just use that wheel? Um, and, you know, instead of reinventing the wheel, you know, I can build the axle, I, I don't know, hand visit analogy, but like <laughs> we can actually go further, faster together by sharing. Um, and that's what open source is all about. Um, that's how I liked it. That was actually a lot shorter and more eloquent than I ever actually achieved <laughs> in conversation. Well, it's captured here for all eternity, right. further, okay. faster, together with mm -hmm. open source. Josh Simmons. <laughs> I'll just play this recording next time I'm in conversation. There you go. It'll be the easiest way. <laughs> well, you've been in, I mean, so you mentioned being a community manager for O'Reilly, um, working uh, for the open source initiative. These are years of being in fairly significant leadership roles in open source. And I'm, I'm really curious, does it look the same now as it did then? And if not, what are the changes you've seen? Like what major events have happened that have changed open source? I am really pleased to say that open source doesn't look like, doesn't look the way it looked when I hit the scene. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I hit the scene more recently than not, to, to be honest. You know, I may have been programming as a, uh, uh, a little tyke, uh, you know, messing around in a MUDS code base. Um, but I didn't realize that anything novel was going on uh, under the hood and, and the fact that there was this existing code base that I could use and, and, and redistribute and modify and all that good stuff. Um, you know, it's changed in a few different ways. Um, I would say that it is uh, the corporate adoption, the enterprise adoption has gone mainstream. Um, and that is exciting to me. That is, that is the goal. Like, great. You know, they, they drink, they, 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 they like it. Um, 
but that has also come with the challenge of like, well, how do we look after the hobbyists and the academics and the researchers and all these other stakeholders in the open source ecosystem? And how do we support these, this whole like field of 800 pound gorillas on the backs of uncompensated labor? Uh, you know, like the adoption, the corporate adoption has been phenomenal and it's the goal in my mind, uh, but it has come with great structural disparities that need to be addressed. Um, the thing that has changed that has me most excited though is the attitudes towards, uh, towards inclusion and the importance that we're placing on building communities that don't just like destroy people. Um, uh, it, it's great to see how pervasive um, that's become. You know, in 2014, I think that was the uh, the, the year of the code of conduct pledge uh, mm -hmm. for speakers who went to, to conferences. And it was like, I the pledge is, I will only speak at conferences that have codes of conduct. And like, there was a, at that time, that was not entirely uncontroversial, which is just shocking to me. Because um, codes of conduct are, that's table stakes. That is like, my mall has a code of conduct for like. <laughs> but is it enforced? Yeah, I don't know about that. And who gets to do the enforcement? And what are the consequences afterwards? Like, it's easy to put up that documentation. It's easy to say, this is what we agree to. I think the challenge then comes actually integrating that into what you do and understanding how how do people recover? Yeah. Well, I I would I would challenge that because it wasn't easy to put up a code of conduct. Mm -hmm. Right? There were a lot of very very vocal folks who were vehemently opposed. So I, I think it's, it may be easy now, but it was a hard fought battle. What was some of the arguments against it that you can remember? <laughs> um, so uh, one of the arguments that I remember, uh, and I remember because it hasn't gone away, it's it's uh, the this this straw manning of the code of conduct as as a punitive measure, um, when in my view a code of conduct is is a restorative tool uh, that clarifies the ground that we are all standing on when we are together, um, mm -hmm. and it is a structured way for us to share and align on expectations for how we will behave with each other, not just in here's what happens if if like something goes poorly, but also here are great examples of how we can interact with each other. Um, you know, the best enforcement of the code of conduct, you know, more often than not, it's like, oh, I didn't realize that this thing I said or did would impact somebody that way. Thank you so much for telling me. Now I don't have to hurt people that way because I know better. And more often than not, it's it's just a, a wonderfully edifying tool for us all to grow together. Uh, 
but but often it's like oh no this is just how we weed out the undesirables you know this sort of tinfoil hat view of codes of conduct my favorite argument against codes of conduct um uh was and, and this one is out there still too um that it was a particularly uh u.s centric ideal that we were exporting and projecting onto the world around us. And on the one hand, I completely appreciate that every culture is different. Um, on the other, that is exactly why we have codes of conduct to level set for us, uh, because mm -hmm. we all come up from different upbringings. And when we define and are explicit about the rules of engagement, we're set up for success. I think I, I love the idea of codes of conduct as tools of empowerment and education um, because it, it kind of goes along the same lines as readmes or contributing instructions. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps people participate in a way that's healthy and conducive to relationship building, which mm -hmm. is so fundamental for open source. Yeah, it's, I go ahead, Josh. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think there's there's really something to be said about making as much as possible as explicit as possible. Um, both because we all come from different backgrounds, and also because our brains are all different, and uh, some people cannot read between the lines or cannot read social cues in the same way. And so, right, like, yeah, hands being raised here. Um, we're the way that we all empower each other to succeed is to be like, well, this is how we succeed. This is how we can engage with each other. That's really positive. And here's, here are the, here are the paths for resolution. Here's the path to making your way from uh, contributor to committer to maintainer, you know, all the different ways that we can get explicit about how our communities function. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just codes of conduct. It is that contributing file. It is that governance file. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think collectively it feels like all of these ways of making um, expectations of community public and transparent um, I love the way that Aja Hammerly says this. It kind of boils down to allowing people to say, if somebody comes in that's new and they may be using language or talking about things that uh, that we don't agree with, we get to say back to them, we don't say that here, right? And so it's this way that when people are new or if they have, if they do have different understandings or backgrounds, um, they just, other people in the community have a way to be able to express and ground here's what we do and do not do and we're together because this is what benefits all of us the most and makes everybody feel the most welcome. Right. And it's so key to, to, to have that. It is that defined. It is that tool of empowerment to every member of the community to say like, Hey, that's just not how we do things here. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if it's undefined, then it's okay. Well, someone said something or did something and that makes me feel uncomfortable. We don't have any rules around this, but I need to say something. And then it just becomes this whole like morass. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, and I think it's important to highlight that these are living documents. Right. You know, yeah. the open source initiative adopted its first code of conduct in 2007 for its mailing lists. Um, that, that code of conduct, it's a little long of the tooth now, does not live up to current best practices. Um, and, and just the same ones that were written in 2014, well, we know more seven years later in, in, mm -hmm. in 2021. Mm -hmm. And so they can evolve with the community as we, as we learn more. Absolutely. Um, so pivoting a little bit, since you mentioned your work with the with the open source initiative or OSI, as you might hear it referenced, um, what what led you to to get involved in kind of this governing body like the OSI? Yeah, so this is, I am new to open source. I'm going to put it that way. I may have been using and consuming and building on open source for the last 23 years. Um, but for the longest time, I didn't know what open source was. Sure, I could work on WordPress and Drupal, but you know, whatever. Um, I grew up with you know, file sharing. Um, and to me, open source just felt like a natural extension of that. Um, and so I never really questioned like, oh, there's an actual novel legal instrument here. Um, and so when I, when I started as a community manager for, for open source at O'Reilly, um, that was eye-opening to me because suddenly I was making philosophies, um, and decades of history, uh, good, bad, and otherwise, um, and and this is just my jam. Like I love people and I love empowering people and uh, helping them be their best selves. But what I realized, what I realized in my outreach, because that was part of my job as community manager, was there were some people who would never show up at OSCON. There were, uh, you know, to say, on, on top of the, the pure demographic, like uh, racial, gender, orientation, uh, socioeconomic status, you know, on top of those typical dimensions of lack of representation, I also found that uh, anybody who developed with PHP, like I did, would summarily have their someone thumb their noses at them. You know, people were constantly looking down on me, down on me, as somebody whose expertise was in web development and marketing. Mm -hmm. I was being constantly othered, and when I tried to bring people in the PHP community into OSCON, sometimes people would come. Generally, they would not have a good experience. Mm. And I, I, I have so much gratitude to uh, Oren, uh, who wrote the piece on contempt culture, which you've never, if you've never heard of it or read it, search for it now on your favorite search engine, look for contempt culture. It is a seminal piece that has really informed how I view a lot of the gatekeeping and toxic behaviors that we see in our communities. 
And so as a web developer, I did not feel represented in open source. Um, I felt othered. And in fact, it, it, it was so weird to me because web development is probably the easiest way into open source. Like view source, you know, write something in a plain text editor. You don't even have to compile it. Just open it in your browser. It'll choke on it or not. Like <laughs> it is such a massive, massive, uh, massive crowd. And for that crowd to be looked down on and not embraced as like full members of the open source community was just egregious to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I ran for the Open Source Initiative Board of Directors for the first time in 2016 because uh, I wanted to give back. Um, and I have a pathological addiction to volunteering. Um, and I also felt like I could help address the representation problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't say that I made a big dent in that particular representation problem. Um, but uh, I've stuck with the organization because I have made a dent in other representation issues um, and in bridge building for the organization and then helping the organization get to this new transformational stage um, that, that it's at now. How, you, you mentioned that you don't feel like you made a um, big dent in- So I think uh, Julia is muted right now, which uh, can't, is that me? That's you, I can hear her. Okay, great. Oh no, okay. That's okay. Keep going, Julia. Um, you mentioned that you don't think you made a, a, a big dent in the representation problem for, for web developers. Do you think there's been some improvement in that area, though? I think so. Um, I, think, I think everybody knows JavaScript's unavoidable. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that language has just been ascendant after the release of V8. Um, and you know you get Node and and all that all that jazz, um, yeah. And I I think just the inevitability of it uh, has has made a dent there. Um, but I mean you also just see how web browsers have gotten more more and more sophisticated and have become like, in my view, things that used to be done on native. Uh, applications are increasingly done in web browsers. And so as web browsers eat more of the feature stack, oh, more of us are web developers, whether we started there or not. That's very true. Um, so yeah, I think that's I think that's gotten a little better. But you know, I think people who primarily work with WordPress or Drupal or PHP, um, I suspect if you took the temperature, there's probably still some hurt there. Um, and, and I don't think that that's problem has been resolved. So, yeah, I'm, I think we only have a few minutes left and there's one burning question. I want to make sure I ask you, uh, what do you see as like the future, the next 20 years of open source? And more importantly, where do you see yourself as a part of that? One of the things that has been most exciting to me um, 
with respect to open source has been the way that um, open source has inspired more open culture movements. Open data, open access, open science, uh, you know, you name it. Like I am delighted to see a greater emphasis on sharing on the commons, on creating a pool of things that we all benefit from rather than, you know, hoarding things in our dragon's layers and, you know, just enjoying them for ourselves. Um, so that that has been one of the most exciting things for me with open source. And I, 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 I want to see that grow. Um, where does it go? Gosh, I hope, I hope that we usher in a world in which being an open source maintainer is a viable career path that isn't contingent on finding a full-time employer. Um, and to me, that's, that's as much about um, making sure people get paid for their labor as it is about just changing the socioeconomic systems in which we exist. Um, I'm super opinionated about the <laughs> economic system that we have here in the United States. And uh, uh, this is that's too long of a conversation. But I want to see those change. Um, and my role in it, you know, I'm not sure. Um, one of the things I'm doing now is I'm managing a, a, a local political campaign and just seeing what the world of politics is like and seeing where my skills land there. And um, I'm keen to see, I'm keen to dabble until I figure out uh, what the next sweet spot is for me. Well, I think there's definitely potential for overlap between politics and, and open source, more so than already has been, because we are seeing more adoption of open source by by governments um, and commitment to actually open sourcing software as well and data. Absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping to drive some of those efforts here locally and uh, who knows, maybe, maybe that's the kind of moving and shaking that I'll do in a few years time. I know, I know some people you could talk to. <laughs> well, we have, about five minutes left um, before we get abruptly cut off. <laughs> is there is there anything else that you would like to to share with us? Yeah, I would like to encourage anybody who happens to listen to this to think extremely broadly about what it means to contribute. There's a lot of ink being spilled appropriately about the different types of contributions that are made to open source projects. We need to get beyond the world of code on a pedestal because good software takes a whole lot more than good code takes marketing too, um, takes 
all manner of skills. Um, and so I'm really glad that that's a conversation that is growing. And I'm grateful for the work that both of you have actually been putting into that. And I wanna, I wanna honor and acknowledge that. Thank, thank you. Thanks. What I would like to also see what, and, and, and it's, it's understandably not something we're hearing as much about because I think it's, these organizations are a little bit more, they're organizations, they're a little more faceless, a little harder to sympathize or empathize with. But I really think that people should look at open source foundations similarly to the way that they look at open source projects. And open source foundations need your contributions. Open source foundations need you on their mailing lists to help guide them through difficult conversations and help dent them so that they are the stewards that we as a community need them to be. But not only do I hope that people show up and converse and, and be opinionated and loud, um, but I also hope that people will, you know, join working groups and committees and run for the board of directors um, because these are these are roles that must be filled to keep this world moving and evolving. And um, we need fresh perspectives all the time. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. That's excellent. Those are excellent notes to, to wrap up on. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Well, we hope to have you back at some point. I would like that. Maybe in the aftertimes, do this in that fancy story card booth that I know you're going to get. Oh, yeah. That sounds excellent. Sweet. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will see you next time. Okay.